afternoon, and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Sophia Hausch, coming to you live from Studio B in USC's Annenberg Media Center. And I'm Yana Carr. It's Tuesday, November 5th. On today's show, we have an update on the 2020 election polls, a recap of the youth climate strike, and an update on the Varsity Blues scandal. All that and more from Where We Are. Top U.S. diplomat has acknowledged to impeachment investigators that there was a quid pro quo linking U.S. aid to Ukraine. Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, said today that he now recalls telling an aide to Ukraine's president that the U.S. would withhold military assistance unless Ukraine agreed to investigate the 2016 election and former Vice President Joe Biden. Sondland's testimony is a complete revision of his previous accounts. President Donald Trump has repeatedly denied engaging in a quid pro quo with Ukraine. For the past six weeks, House impeachment investigators have been meeting behind closed doors to hear testimonies. Just yesterday, two new transcripts were released, the testimonies of former Ukraine Ambassador Mary Yovanovitch and of Michael McKinley, a senior aide to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Their testimonies present concerns from U.S. diplomats in both Washington and Kiev about pressures put on Ukraine by the president's administration. Sworn testimony from 14 current and formal officials, former officials involved in the Trump administration suggests the president withheld nearly $400 million in military aid to Ukraine while pushing the government to dig up information about political opponents. Last Thursday, the House passed a resolution to formalize the impeachment inquiry, which now makes the investigation into Trump more publicly viewable. The transcripts being released are part of this process. We're officially less than one year away from Election Day 2020. But the Democratic field is still crowded, and a new poll has some people concerned. Jillian Carroll has the story. A recent poll conducted by the New York Times and Siena College shows former Vice President Joe Biden is the only candidate who could beat Donald Trump in key battleground states. Among registered voters, the poll shows Biden leading Trump in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, and Arizona. When it comes to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, the two candidates most popular among college-age voters, the results are more uncertain. Sanders only leads Trump in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Warren only leads in Arizona. Here's Ben Pierce, president of the USC College Democrats. I, I just think it's too far out to know like how people my age are going to like, how, if this would affect their vote at all, or if they will just continue advocating for their person than trying to convince people that they too should support. Pierce says it's also too soon to rule Sanders out. Last month, the Vermont senator got a major endorsement from Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Sanders is still in the lead in the latest Chegg College Pulse Weekly poll of Democratic and Democratic-leading college students. Young people like Sanders, right? And there's enough reason, there's enough stuff in that, in this poll to suggest that, like, Sanders will still win against Trump. With more than a dozen candidates still in the running for the Democratic nomination, polls this far out aren't necessarily indicative of the results. But it could send a strong message for the frontrunners about needing to appeal to a more diverse audience. Biden and Sanders have better margins with like black voters and uh, Latinx voters uh, than Warren does. Um, and so her coalition's pretty white. And so I think uh, there's something to be said for needing to broaden her base. With less than a year to go, the big question voters will need to ask themselves is probably the most difficult one. Is this 2020 election going to be who we think is the most electable? Who do you think we can beat Trump? Or is it going to be a question of something else? For Annenberg Media, I'm Jillian Carroll.
About a thousand young adults, families, and kids stomped through the streets of downtown Los Angeles for the youth climate strike last week. The New York Times reports that with the internet on their side, the youth have never led a political movement so effectively as they are when it comes to climate. Reporter, reporter Rebecca Katz has more. There is no planet B. Leading the packs at the youth climate strike were teenage girls with braces and purple streaks in their hair. Most of the protesters were younger than 16 years old. How old are you guys? 14. 14? Yeah, 14. Students from middle and high schools from across the county skipped classes to show their strength in numbers. Like, our, I swear to God, our whole school came and like everyone got Saturday school in detention. But, now but for these teens, detention was no barrier. The planet is their priority. I'm Kira Co-op. I'm here because I care about the environment. I want to help raise awareness and help people understand this is a pressing issue and we need to fix it right now. My name is Amelie Adams and I'm also here for the same reason. I really care about this planet. There's only one of it. Parents brought babies in strollers. Even elementary school students protested with passion and purpose. I'm Bo Jamison Ebeling. You can tell it's so hot right now and climate change is like going up. So I want to do as much as I can to help Earth. The face of the youth climate change movement, 16-year-old Greta Thunberg, continues to rally her troops. Do you think they are listening to us? Well, we will make them listen. They will make those in power listen indeed. These kids are just getting started. We are the future! For Annenberg Media, I'm Rebecca Katz. The Trump administration has officially notified the United Nations that the U.S. will withdraw from the Paris Agreement on climate change. Felicia Tapia reports. In 2017, President Trump first spoke of the decision in the White House Rose Garden. The United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. But a lot of cities, including Los Angeles, have formulated their own strategies for combating climate change in the absence of a national one. Last month, politicians gathered at a world mayor summit to discuss what cities can do to combat climate change. New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was there, as well as the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, and L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. You might hear a lot of things about America and climate these days, but we represent, in this room, at least three of the 425 mayors, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, who have accepted the Paris Climate Accords and said, even if the White House is out, we are in. Garcetti also reached out to young people with his Mayor's Youth Council for Climate Action. That brings high school and college students together to help LA strategize on how to mitigate climate change effects. Sohela Amiri is a research associate at the USC Center on Public Diplomacy. She says that cities as much as nations play an important role in global sustainability. Another important thing is that cities, because they are connected to the public, for instance, in a place like the United States, they can be they can be the storytellers. Mm -hmm. They can engage better with the public to make their constituents understand the importance of this global challenge. To get the message across at USC, look to the Environmental Student Assembly. Nathaniel Hyman is co-executive director. More and more of America is now living in cities. Um, so how we govern, uh, how we govern and maintain cities and develop cities is going to be increasingly relevant to how we fight climate change. 
The Assembly continues to push for USC to phase out the use of fossil fuels and for increased education in sustainability. Next week, city representatives from across the United States will discuss the role of cities at the USC Center on Public Diplomacy. Nationally, the President's notice will begin a year-long exiting process. The U.S. is set to leave the Paris Agreement on Climate Change on November 4, 2020, the day after the presidential election. In 15 days, a man could be executed. His name is Rodney Reed, and social media could help to save him. Ari Taylor reports. For over 20 years, Reed has been on death row for the murder of Stacey Stites in Texas. Originally, all signs of guilt pointed to her fiancé, Jimmy Fennell. Fennell was a local police officer. But things took a turn after Rodney Reed's DNA was found inside Stacey Stites. Reed said he and Stites were in a casual relationship and had consensual sex. Experts who reviewed Reed's case have found it riddled with inconsistencies. The Innocence Project is a New York-based group that works to exonerate the wrongly convicted through DNA testing. They proclaim the innocence of Rodney Reed. Jimmy Fennell allegedly confessed to a prison inmate that he killed Stacy Stites. The uncertainties in this case have sparked public outrage and protest. Hashtag Free Rodney Reed has trended on Twitter and Instagram. Several major LA entertainers have been speaking out. Celebrities like Rihanna, Kim Kardashian, and McMill have taken to social media to advocate for Reed. Sharani Little, Associate Dean and Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at USC Marshall School of Business, says that social media activism can have a large impact on criminal cases. As I said, galvanize people to bring people um, into some form of unification around a common cause or common issue and allows for a more, um, a stronger voice, collective voice. Social media activism has fueled campaigns and petitions calling for a retrial for Rodney Reed. 26 Texas legislators sent an emergency letter to Texas Governor Greg Abbott asking him to delay Reed's execution. Last week, Reed's attorneys filed a request for clemency to stop his execution scheduled for November 20th. The governor has not released a statement. For Annenberg Media, I'm Ari Taylor. A man was killed after being hit by the Metro A-Line train this weekend. It happened on Saturday between downtown Los Angeles and Long Beach. Metro Communications Manager Jose Ubaldo says incidents like these are uncommon. The system is very safe. Security is tightened up every day, and we're covering now with more cameras, more police present, undercover officers trying to make the more safe environment. We are working really hard to make sure the system is really safe and secure for the uh, passengers and customers of Metro to travel in a safe uh, environment. Ubaldo added that the collision did not occur at a grade crossing. The incident came just hours after city officials celebrated the reopening of the A-Line, formerly known as the Blue Line. It is the oldest metro rail line in Los Angeles County and recently underwent an eight-month, $350 million improvement project. The city of Los Angeles has officially suspended Uber's permit to rent out electric scooters around town. 
In order to get scooters up and rolling, Uber and the rest must provide real-time information on vehicle location, user data, and the time period that each user drives. But the rideshare company has been fighting the LA City Council over the location-sharing guideline for their jump scooters. They say that the city government could use the data to track riders' lives, and with only a little extra work, determine where they live and where they work. The company has threatened to sue L.A. over an unfair and improper suspension and is questioning the city's administrative process. A slew of Varsity Blues scandal cases are continuing to make their way through a Boston federal court. USC Culture and Governance reporter Alicia Morales has more on the latest developments. The legal battle continues for actress Lori Laughlin and husband Mazimo Giannulli as the couple rallies to fight new charges in the Varsity Blues college admission scandal. Last Friday, Laughlin and Giannulli's lawyer filed court documents stating their intent to plead not guilty to the new federal bribery charges issued on October 22nd. Laughlin and Giannulli are among nine other defendants affected by the new indictment. Given the latest legal developments in previous charges of money laundering, mail fraud, and honest services mail fraud, the couple could face up to 50 years in prison. Laughlin and Giannulli have waived their right to appear at a November 20th arraignment. For Annenberg Media, I'm Alicia Morales. The dreaded four hours of bubbling in endless answer sheets for college entrance testing may be coming to an end for high schoolers applying to UCs, as a new coalition is raising concerns that these standardized tests may not give everyone an equal chance to succeed. The coalition, consisting of students, the Compton Unified School District, and many related organizations, sent a letter to the UC regents, which demands that they remove the SAT and ACT as admissions requirements, or else they'll sue. The letter says that the tests favor wealthy white students, placing less affluent Hispanic and black students at a disadvantage. Stephen Ceresi is an expert in standardized testing and education policy and a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He says that there may be a better solution, and it starts with schools. And the problem is not a testing problem. The problem is an education problem. So I think we need to... To bring some communities together to come up with a better solution than just not using tests. The fact of the matter is there's huge discrepancies in inequity with respect to schools and school districts across California and the United States. So to blame the test for what's happening, I think, is just pretty simple-minded. You know, I guess I understand why they, you know, would think that, but, but clearly the causes of the inequities are much more complex than, than that. We talked with USC students, most of whom took the SAT or ACT to get into college, about the letter and the idea of getting rid of the tests. Here's what they had to say. I don't think standardized testing should be a mode of getting into like prestigious colleges because some people just don't have the resources as others do to get a better score. I think that if we were to change some kind of policy here, I would say to um, allow more communities to have these SAT like courses um, available and at a convenient price or even free so that students don't feel disadvantaged. I think it's a very good idea. I actually think that people that have the opportunity of taking the SAT multiple times and paying for it multiple times and paying for SAT prep, they have a better chance on getting a good score than people that don't have access to, to that. So I think that removing it is, is a good idea. 
I think that I, I know many kids that did really well on the SAT, but they don't do well in college. I don't think it's a very good um, approach to knowing how well a student does in, in college or high school. Um, I would say no, do not get rid of it, because as it is of now, it's extremely hard for schools to go ahead and see what a student is like, it's a good base point. Because even if, like, say, a student is extremely intelligent but they do poorly on the SAT, what that shows to me is they didn't take it seriously and they didn't study and they know it's a big part of applying to colleges. The one thing I would say is I've always thought that they should be more holistic in their admission process, considering other things besides the SAT, because a lot of people are just bad at taking tests. So maybe it's a good move. to From Where We Are. It's 16 minutes after the hour. I'm Yana Carr. And I'm Sophia Hausch. Coming up, our segment on words, Root Source, looks at why we call redheads ginger. Basketball or affordable housing in Inglewood? And what's coming up on tonight's ATVN? This morning, the Uplift Inglewood Coalition held a rally at the LA City Council to challenge the LA Clippers and the city after they failed to give priority to affordable housing options. Celine Chinoy reports. A group of 20 activists for Inglewood made their voices heard today. They gathered outside LA City Hall to protest the construction of the new $1 billion basketball arena in Inglewood for the Clippers. They say the land should be used for affordable housing. These activists have already initiated a lawsuit against Inglewood. In it, they argue that the city violated a statute that requires cities, when selling off public land, to give priority to affordable housing developments. D'Artagnan Scorza was there protesting. Uh, we came here today because our coalition and community members took a stand to fight um, to enforce state housing laws in the city of Inglewood. And we're asking the court for justice. This means that the, the court will require the city of Inglewood to comply with state housing laws to make sure that we address our housing crisis in our city. The activists also protested that the Clippers' development on about 20 acres of land is driving up rents in Inglewood. Shashi Hanuman is the directing attorney of the Community Development Project of the pro bono law firm Public Council. She's also in the coalition that organized today's protest. Our members of Uplift Inglewood Coalition just talked about how she faced a $1,000 rent increase, um, raising her rent from $1,300 to $2,300, um, and was faced with losing her home. And those kinds of stories are happening every day. The LA Clippers have proposed committing $100 million to Inglewood as part of their deal for the arena. Up to $75 million of it could include low-interest loans for affordable and mixed-income housing. The Clippers say that this would be the largest community benefit plan connected to a stadium or entertainment venue deal in the state. But Derek Steele of the Uplift Inglewood Coalition says that money is not enough. We actually need to get involved with the people and find out what we actually really need, right? And it comes with us having discussions together, not actually doing something on your own behind closed doors with the billionaire uh, developer. Since the developers have taken control off the parcel and rents have risen, many Inglewood residents have been forced to leave their community in search for more affordable housing. 
For Annenberg Media, I'm Celine Chenoy. Today is election day for LA County. However, out-of-state college students are not eligible to vote in LA County, despite the fact that many of them spend more time on campus than they do in their home state. Reporter Hala Osgur spoke to students about whether or not they think college students should count as state residents, which would allow them to vote in local elections. Do you think out-of-state students who attend universities on campus here should be able to vote in local elections? Um, yeah, I do. I mean, I can't say that for myself because I'm out-of-state and I'm voting for the Florida election, but I think it's a good option. Like, I think it would be very nice if we can be able to vote for the in-state elections. No, because they're not residents, so I don't think they should. I don't think so, because I don't really know about um, their politics, about um, their issues, so because I'm an out, outsider from this, their culture, so I don't really know about, a lot about that. Yes, because their view on current events and generally like your worldview is shaped by your more like community you live in, not necessarily the community like or like the state you're from and stuff like that. So if you're in California and four years in California, you probably should be voting in California. You just heard from students Tia Rodriguez. Niema to Day, Shiri Lee, and Rebecca Chen. LA, on a Saturday night in the summer, sundown and they all come out. Know anyone in your life who has, spent, who has that special orange glow in their hair? Well, send them your well wishes because it's National Redhead Day. Here are two of our resident redheads with a very spicy root source. I'm Isaiah Murtaugh. And I'm Chase Beach. And, and we're gingers. gingers. For centuries, people have afforded redheads a special place in their folklore. Some say we're descended from the gods. Others are certain we're vampires. There are rumors that we'll be extinct by 2050, that we get easily angry. Not me. Okay. And that we have unusually high pain tolerance. In movies, redhead boys are usually the bully. What, are you going to cry now? Come on, cry, baby, cry for me. Or the butt of the joke. Bloody hell, Harry. <laughs> that was not funny. That was Zach Ward playing Scut Farkas in A Christmas Story and Rupert Grint as Ron Weasley in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Ginger is the most common nickname I heard growing up. It was cemented in the popular lexicon by the satirical show South Park and their Kick a Ginger Day episode. Ginger kids are born with a disease which causes very light skin, red hair, and freckles. This disease is called gingivitis, and it occurs because ginger kids have no souls. Thank you, Cartman, for that rousing explanation of redheaded existence. Chase, how many times growing up did people ask you about your soul? <laughs> it got pretty bad in seventh grade when that episode came out. It came up a lot. They did not believe that I had a soul. Yeah, peak social life. Yeah. Some Americans trace the word back to landmark sitcom Gilligan's Island. Let me entertain you. That's Let Tina Louise playing Ginger Grant. She was a hot topic when the show aired. She's an example of the way red-headed women are sexualized in popular media. Mad Men's Joan Holloway and Mean Girls' Katie Heron are two of the latest copper-tinted sex symbols. But the roots of this word go back way further, to 18th century Britain. The first documented use of the word in this form was from a 1779 poem about a fighting cock with reddish-brown plumage. And then it showed up in John B.'s 1823 Dictionary of Slang, which defined it as another name for red-haired person's 
Origin theories abound. Some people say it comes from the spicy root you eat with your sushi. Some others say it's an imperial legacy, and it comes from a Malaysian flower the British called red ginger. Isaiah, do you like your hair? <laughs> I guess you. It's definitely made me a stronger person. <laughs> For Annenberg Media, I'm Isaiah Murta. And I'm Chase Beach. <laughs> You know, I never knew all about all of that about the word ginger, especially because ginger isn't actually red. No, yeah, I never, I never really thought about it, but there's really like no connection when you when you consider it. Right, but I definitely remember that South Park episode coming out. Yes, that was a big thing. Having an older brother, I knew all about South Park. Ampersand. Now it's time for Ampersand Radio, a segment specializing in arts and culture stories. Tucked away in a corner of Hollywood in a dark two-story building is a club that's all about community, but you'll probably never be able to get in. Reporter Haley Bosselman got the chance to take a look inside. For me, there are a few things I find important on a night out. I must be with my friends, and wherever we end up must have good music. I also seek places of belonging, where the atmosphere feels welcoming. We don't always get that in Los Angeles. So, on a Tuesday in September, I put on my best black-on-black outfit and head for Hollywood. Just past the Church of Scientology Information Center, I see it. A large projection of a dagger. I have found Cloak and Dagger. Cloak and Dagger is a members-only club with a lot of rules. You must wear all black, all black, no exceptions, to get in. You have to be a member or the guest of a member. You have to respect everyone's personal boundaries. We are looking for people who bring something special or beautiful to the room. That's Adam. He's one of the co-founders of Cloak and Dagger. He also DJs every week, unless of course Diplo pops in. Cloak and Dagger is a throwback to Los Angeles nightlife before the new millennium changed everything. In the late 90s, bottle service came into the picture. Suddenly, all that mattered was you had money. Money to pay for big bottles of booze and girls dancing around with sparklers. Cell phones also changed the game. Sometimes I get called to go DJ or do a set at like a kind of a big bottle service-y kind of club. And I look around and I'm like, the dance floor has gotten smaller and smaller over the years. And some clubs don't even have one. And it's all booths filled with people with bottles taking Instagram stories or Snapchat stories of themselves all night. I would say Cloak & Dagger is definitely a place that feels more like what nightlife used to be in terms of how the energy is in there. And um, the energy is, is definitely electric every Tuesday night. Still, Cloak & Dagger is not oblivious to the rest of the world. They have an Instagram with over 37,000 followers and feature photos taken by their official photographer, the only person allowed in with a camera. It's a chance to highlight members and their friends. Our focus is providing a safe space for people to come and do whatever it is that they want to do without worrying about the outside world. September 24th is the night Cloak and Dagger celebrate the autumn equinox with the Maybon ritual. It is a moment for members to come together and appreciate what they are grateful for. We celebrate abundance, balance, and uh, just what we're grateful for and sharing 
prosperity with other loved ones and, and celebrating the light as well. That's Natalie. She's a holistic healer and nature witch who guides the meditation. Natalie is also a cloak and dagger regular. The moment has come for me to see if this is all true. I squeeze past slinking bodies. Some groove, some drink, others chat. No phones, just the occasional flash of the photographer. I can't go into details, but I will say the American Horror Story coven would probably enjoy it here. Once inside, something happens. Something I can't talk about because of the trust they put in me. Because of the trust I had in them. For Ampersand Radio, I'm Haley Bosselman. For more stories like this, visit Ampersand online at ampersandla.com. Now it's time to hear what's going on at ATVN tonight, our sister television show. Nikki Walker joins us in the studio, and she's ATVN's executive producer. Nikki, what's on tonight's show? Hello, thank you for having me. We are leading with the recent governance change um, of the structure of the Board of Trustees. So they um, previously had 55 voting members, and they just announced in an email about an hour ago that they are reducing that size to 35 members, among other changes that come with um, a growing university. So with the university changing, they are adapting the Board of Trustees as well. Um, we are going to be talking with Ariella Gross, and she is one of the members of the Concerned Faculty Group. So I have that interview at 5 p.m. We'll make it for our show at 5.30. And we also have a live shot. We have a, one of our reporters at the LA Exit. They are expanding the LA Exit area to by about 50%. So um, waiter, or people that are at LAX will not have to wait an hour for an Uber or a Lyft. Thank you for talking to us, Nikki. Thanks so much. You can catch ATVN tonight at 5.30 on YouTube and USC Annenberg Media. That's all we have time for on today's From Where We Are. Zazu Lippert and Iona White produced today's show. We had help today from Isaiah Murtaugh. Yuki Liang is our board operator. Derek Renfro composed our theme music. Subscribe to From Where We Are on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Annenberg Media. I'm, I'm Sophia Hausch. <laughs> Wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again next time for From Where We Are.